We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The shooting, the violence, that's what we're going to talk about today. 2015 has been a year of very impressive police violence, but it's not really just 2015. It goes well before that. How did we get here, all this police violence? Millions of nonviolent Americans in jails? Millions of them. The vast militarization of local police coming to treat citizens as the enemy in a war situation. How did we get this way? You're listening to Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Dr. Christian Parenti, author of four books, including Lockdown America, Police and Prisons in the Age of Crisis, and The Soft Cage, Surveillance in America from Slavery to the War on Terror. Dr. Parenti teaches at NYU's Global Liberal Studies Program. Christian Parenti, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me. Well, in a current article in the left-leaning Jacobin magazine, our guest asks what sorely needs to be asked regarding our current level of police state in America. How did we get here? Millions behind bars or on probation, even small-town cops are armed like soldiers with a thoroughly militarized southern border. At its heart, the new American repression is very much about the restoration and maintenance of ruling class power, he argues. Today, the poor are thoroughly locked down, as is our political imagination about what poverty means. Think about that. Law enforcement has moved to the center of domestic politics. State violence is perhaps more than ever a constant, regular, and normal feature of poor people's lives. Police violence, as far as I know, it surged in the 1880s, crushing workers' political strength by violent means, such as the so-called Haymarket Riot. Has not policing in America long been largely about the protection of ruling class power? Maybe you can just uh, shed a little light on that situation, the Haymarket Riot, so-called, in the uh, late 1880s. Yes. That's always been an important element in American policing. It's about reproducing the society the way it is, which is to say reproducing the social hierarchy of the society. And one thing the cops do and have done historically is confront striking workers. Um, but what happens in the 
late 1960s, which is really when, you know, the beginning of the right. moment we're in now, this big criminal justice buildup, is that the federal government gets involved in policing, uh, local and state policing, in a much more aggressive fashion. And that uh, is a street sweeper going out by oh. outside. I don't know if you hear that. Sorry. That, um, but... So the, the federal government began to really invest heavily in local and state law enforcement. Up until that time, criminal justice was primarily uh, a local and state affair. Mm. And it is in reaction to the radical movements of the 1960s and to the kind of diffuse radicalism in the society and the disorder embodied in the riots in, that gripped many American cities from summer of 1960 five on that the federal government passes in 1968 this really huge omnibus crime bill that uh, creates a massive federal bureaucracy called the Law Enforcement Assistance right. Administration, right. which over the next 10 years redistributes about a billion dollars a year, back when that really meant something, down to local police and law enforcement. And that's when cops start getting... Right, um, start getting SWAT teams, oh, yes. computers, helicopters, you know, all of the features that we associate with modern policing today, automobiles, shoulder radios. So there's a whole modernization effort and an intensification of policing that is born out of the LEAA. And that bill was a response to, uh, at one level, this, this sort of apolitical rising crime rate of the late 60s, but also at another level, it was very much a response to the society-wide rebellion of the late 60s. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, even before the 60s, as I look back, I, I like to look at history on this show, Keeping Democracy Alive, uh, you know, as far back as the 19-teens, uh, there were immigrants from oh, various not particularly welcome parts of Europe, Eastern Europe in, in particular, Italians and others. And a lot of the immigrants who came here leaned to the left. Uh, they did. They often found themselves at the mercy of police. There was the, uh, of course, Sacco and Vanzetti, where they were uh, two Italian anarchists. Yes, their po politics were what they were, but they were charged with, with murder, and they were actually executed, and, and it just seems there was no reason for that. And that led to the, uh, except politics, and that led to the uh, Aliens and Sedition Act uh, of the late uh, 19-teens. So, I, I don't know, I mean, th that kind of geared up police, you know, having some sort of political uh, agenda, did it not? That 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 being the the wave of immigrants, in the yeah, and how the how the immigrants were treated, the left leaning immigrants such as Sacco and Vanzetti, and uh, of course Emma Goldman, people like that. If you look at if you look at the long development of police forces in this country, there are no uniformed police forces until the um, very very late eighteen forties, early eighteen fifties, when the, when the New York City police put on uniforms, and that was also a response to the disorders that were, to some extent, left-wing, but also, to some extent, uh, not so left-wing. In the 1820s and 30s and 40s, particularly the 30s and 40s, when there are lots of Irish immigrants coming in, there's, you know, no public investment in cities. American cities were really 
pretty wild places. Pigs in the streets, constant, you know, typhus outbreaks, and there was a lot of rioting and competition between freelance private fire companies that would get into violence with each other. So there was a whole uh, kind of disorder called mobbing, which was just violence. Mm. And sometimes it was against employers, but sometimes it was just against other neighborhoods. There was an anti-Catholic element. There was, like, racist elements to it. So it was in response to that kind of disorder that the very first modernization of policing develops. But there's a real shift in the late 60s, is what the article's about, because, I mean, from the end of the Civil War until the late 1960s, incarceration rates in the U.S. pretty much stay stable. They, they're at about, I think it's like 17 per 100,000, something like that. It doesn't really go up or down much beyond that. And then, in the late 60s, the incarceration rates really begin to go up, and they've been more or less steadily going up uh, into the present, and now we have this vast prison system. We've got 2.2 million people in prison and another 4 or 5 million out on various types of parole, probation, court-supervised release of various types. A really huge apparatus that's you know unlike most other countries. So uh, it used to be, as you mentioned, I believe 17, approximately 17 per 100,000. I wonder what it is about now. Um, it, well, I, I don't have that at the top of my head. One could easily Google that. You go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. They put out uh, these types of statistics. Um, but it is, it is um, you know, for certain populations, it's, you know, African-Americans in particular, African-American men without high school diplomas. Um, it is, you know... And about how many, I wonder how many people, how many American citizens are in jail now? 2.2 million are in, are in jail and prison. Wow, 2.2 million. And it's, it's 4.5 million who are, 4.7 million on parole and probation. And that can be, you know, pretty yeah. restrictive. In many ways, that's something that, that we should be afraid of, as there is now, finally, some credible movement towards decarceration. Of course, the risk is that the prison population could shrink, but then the population of people who are under some sort of court and police monitoring on the outside could easily expand, especially as Mm -hmm. we go into this so-called Internet of Things, where Silicon Valley is trying to have more and more of our appliances connected to the Internet uh, in the name of knowing when your milk is, you know, run out or whatever, which is ridiculous mm-hmm. justifications. But of course, you know, a world in which more and more of the built environment is rigged for surveillance is conducive to keeping more and more of the population in some sort of semi-carceral state. Hmm. So it's the fear that that some activists are lately uh, focusing on, as there is at this current moment, actually some progress towards decarceration. California has released 40,000 prisoners over the last few years because of a Supreme Court order that found that, that the state was guilty of cruel and unusual punishment uh-huh. because of the tremendous overcrowding in its prison system. So they were forced to send prisoners back to the counties, some, some nonviolent prisoners, back to the counties of their conviction where 
some progressive counties release those prisoners and unfortunately other counties just keep them in county jail, which is in many ways can be even worse than prison because there's less, uh, fewer amenities, et cetera. So there, this whole surveillance state, you know, when you think back to uh, uh, George Orwell's 1984, it's far more sophisticated than he even envisioned, because, I mean, how could you envision the Internet in this just incredible surveillance state? I mean, they talked about Big Brother is watching, but, man, Big Brother really is watching. It's amazing to me how if you look for something on the Internet, you'll get ads related to what you just looked at. And now it's not just, of course, the government that's watching through uh, the uh, NSA and spying on us, but it's also big corporations. And I can't help but think that there's some collusion between uh, the biggest corporations that like to keep tabs on us and sharing the information. I mean, we had uh, uh, the concern about uh, uh, AT&T and other telephone providers gleefully providing information to the National Security Agency. It's, it's quite a combination police and surveillance state. Now, I, I grew up in the 1950s. I'll you know, acknowledge that. And it seemed to be years of relative domestic peace. There was a thriving white middle class and Black people pretty much avoided rocking the boat. At least that's the impression that we got. Uh, you know, the, the uh, what they were called back then, Negroes, were kind of hidden away. You know, everything looked uh, peaceful and tranquil. Was that picture accurate, or was there a lot of, uh, oh, you know, racist police violence back then, do you think, along with the obvious Ku Klux Klan? Well, of course, I mean, there was a lot of racist police violence. There's always been racist police violence in America, but there wasn't as as much uh, or as intense of policing as there is now. I mean, there simply wasn't the same ratio of police to population. The police didn't have military equipment. There was no, in the 1950s, there was no, you know, SWAT teams, um, you know, delivering bench warrants to grandmothers who missed court dates. The other thing that was going on in, in the 50s, which is really important, is that the economy was expanding. Yes. And there was employment that could absorb lots and lots of people. And so you had, beginning at the end of World War One, the mechanization of Southern agriculture, the great migration of African Americans from the South to the industrial cities of the North. And there's a brief period where there is such a demand for labor in the cities of what is now the Rust Belt, that was then the Steel Belt, that there was you know, a considerable amount of social mobility, even for African Americans. It doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of racism, et cetera, but those were the days in which it was far more possible for a young man uh, of, of any race to finish high school, or maybe even drop out of high school, and then get a job in a factory and have a union represent them and make a decent living and be able to support a family. And that really begins to change radically in the 70s and 80s. The actual you know, process of deindustrialization begins very, very slowly and almost imperceptibly in mm. the 60s, I mean, in the 50s with automation. But then what happens is that the crisis, the economic crisis of the 1970s leads to a real 
radical transformation of American and, in fact, global capitalism. And that is the pivot of the argument in Lockdown America, which is essentially what that book and what this article in Jackson try to do is put the context of the, mil- the, the militarization of policing and the criminal justice buildup since the late 1960s, put that in the context of global political economy. And what happens is this. That golden era of American capitalism from the end of World War II into the mid-1970s was itself in many ways predicated on the rebuilding after World War II. World War II not only killed millions of people, it destroyed billions and billions of dollars worth of stuff, of capital, of equipment, factories, whole cities, etc. So the process of rebuilding Europe and the core economies, uh, you know, Japan and other parts of Asia that had been shattered by the war really was the basis for a generation-long boom. The U.S. emerged from that war not having its industries bombarded and destroyed, but rather having them built up. And then we convert from wartime um, manufacturing to to sort of, more, you know, peaceful production from airplanes to, to appliances. And that uh, allows a long period of high, rate, high, high wages, rising wages, high rates of overall growth, high rates of taxation. I mean, you've got to remember, like, the top tax bracket in the 50s was uh, above 70%. I mean, before oh, yeah. Reagan came in, the, the top tax bracket never went below 70%. There were times in the late 50s, late 40s, where the top tax, top tax bracket was in the 90s. That's right. So really high taxes, but also robust profit. Yes. And so and this was all predicated on the expansion, just rebuilding all of this stuff that had been destroyed. Finally, by the mid-60s, world markets were glutted. That doesn't mean that there weren't plenty of people who still needed things. It doesn't mean there weren't poor children in, in, you know, the global south who needed shoes. But what it meant was that pretty much everybody who had money to buy the goodies that world capitalism could produce had them. World markets were glutted. And at that point, uh, profits began to decline. And profits are the key economic indicator. I mean, uh, corporations do not invest in the economy for the sake of growth, right? Right. They invest for the sake of growth of profits. They don't invest for the sake of growth of employment. No, they invest for the sake of growth of profits. Right. So when profits were hit, that became a real problem. And what they found, the economists and policymakers found, was that in the early 70s, as unemployment increased for the first time in American history, wages did not decrease. And this is why I make the case that this is about class power, uh, because there was a realization that, okay, wait a minute, how are, are the employers, uh, the owners of the means of production, the factories, et cetera, going to force those who sell their labor to do so for less? Mm-hmm. And they could not get workers in America during the 1970s to settle for a lower standard of, of living. And what was discovered was essentially that the welfare infrastructure, the social democratic kind of redistributive programs that had been developed out of the New Deal of the 1930s and 40s and out of the Johnson era war on poverty in the 60s, which in many ways were designed to uh, take care of 
the poorest and, and to, to take the edge off the, the, the worst poverty, what was realized was that this also indirectly and sometimes not so indirectly supported the power of the working class in general in its struggles to bid up wages. Right. So an example I use in, in the essay is that there was a, uh, a big strike in New England, uh, particularly against GE. GE right. has, still has a lot of manufacturing in New England, as you're listening as well. Oh, yeah. um, there was a big strike in 69 against GE, and the executives of GE discovered they did an analysis of the strike, and they found out that the striking workers were not only getting their strike pay, which is their own dues that they paid their union, but they were able to apply for welfare and uh, and get assistance from the government. Anti-poverty programs were essentially subsidizing the strikers in their efforts to uh, win more concessions from General Electric. So imagine, imagine yeah. from the point of view of a manager of a, of a board of directors, member of General Electric, saying, "Wait, look, this this whole anti-poverty, uh, Keynesian stabilization program, this idea that you know, like the, there's, there's going to be mass prosperity and rising vote for all if the government taxes the rich and and we redistribute some money so that poor people can buy our products. Mm-hmm. That all seems great, but wait a minute, no, now this is this is the federal government taking our taxes to subsidize strikers to force us to give them more money." So with that, it, the, the, the elites began to really turn on the Keynesian consensus, which had come out of the New Deal, which is the idea right. you know, that, that a capitalist economy needs to be managed. These are the ideas of John Maynard Keynes. Sure. And the whole 1970s are sort of like a stalemate between labor and capital. This is resolved with Reagan coming in, and Paul Volcker is his uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve. Volcker jacks up interest rates. Some of your listeners will not be old enough to remember that. Mm. They went up to like, you know, oh. 18%. Oh, and that huge. caused borrowing and spending and investment to constrict radically. We had the, the worst recession since the Great Depression. And then that's what broke the wage price spiral, a.k.a. stagflation. It was this horrible recession at the same time that Reagan comes in, starts cutting welfare, cutting all sorts of assistance to the poor and working classes, um, staffs the National Labor Relations Board with anti-union people, and mm-hmm. there's a war on the incipient, inadequate, but nonetheless real sort of social democracy that had developed in the U.S., and uh, a war on labor. And then you start seeing prices, the price of labor, i.e. wages going down and profits going up. The tax burden is shifted from the rich to the working class. And so, in terms of the criminal justice buildup, what happens yes. is the first stage of the buildup is a response to the political movement. There's counterinsurgency by other means. The response mm. to the black power movement, to the riots, to the anti-war movement, etc. That plateaus in the late 60s. There's, I mean, in the late 70s, Reagan finally deals with this underlying economic crisis, which is the profit crisis. Profitability is restored in the early 80s, but inequality increases as a result and so then Reagan re-engages with this whole war on drugs, criminal justice buildup in the mid-80s. And then through the mid-80s to the late 90s, we have this just vicious um, yeah. kind of set of federal laws that restructure policing, that uh, increase the power of the prosecution, that militarize border policing, and... 
target immigrants that strip from prisoners all of their hard-won civil rights, their ability to sue prisons and guards, etc. And that that whole momentum and criminal justice buildup then begins to sort of plateau in the late 90s. Uh, at this point, the, the underlying economic crisis for capital, for business, has been solved. Profits are, are healthy. Yeah. Uh, there begins to be kind of a rethink about this in the late 90s. To my mind, it's, it's embodied well in Ted Koppel's documentaries. I mean, Ted Koppel was, hmm. like all of the television journalists, pretty much a cheerleader for the war on drugs, drugs through much of the 80s and 90s. And by the end of the 90s, he's making documentaries that were really quite good and very critical of what was going on. And you actually begin to see incarceration rates plateau. They stop increasing. But then what happens is the attacks of 9-11, War on Terror, Patriot Act, and even though the rhetoric wasn't about the war on drugs, the aid given to state and local law enforcement and the empowering of the prosecution and the uh, liberalization of the rules governing surveillance, all of that feeds directly into the war on drugs. And so we get another uptick, in, no, not an uptick, but we get another pulse of energy and resources to the police and prosecution, and you get an increase in incarceration rates through the Bush era, which then, interestingly, has begun to plateau in the last few years. I think just last year they did go up again, but there's been a couple of years where state and federal prison incarceration rates and populations have gone down. County jail incarceration rates are still going up, which is really interesting, hmm. because that's the whole Ferguson thing. What we're seeing is that, like, the, part of what I critique in lockdown America was the idea of the prison industrial complex, the idea that this whole buildup was pushed by private firms. Uh-huh. It, it just, it simply wasn't. They, they, they didn't lobby for this stuff. I mean, there are private firms that do lobby for tighter laws, et cetera, et cetera, but they weren't there at the beginning, and they haven't really won that much. You only have 8% of prison beds are run by private firms. But where you see a kind of prison industrial complex logic, which is to say um, a purely pecuniary logic driving repression is at the level of certain counties, particularly in parts of the South and the Midwest, and that, as everyone knows, that's what was going on in Ferguson, Missouri. I mean, this this broke little county just, just squeezing every last dollar it could out of its black population via its local criminal justice system. Fascinating. Anyway, that's, so so we're, I mean, we're kind of in a... I mean, the good news is I think we're in a moment when large parts of the society are really open to rethinking the, the war on drugs, and really rethinking what exactly are we doing to ourselves? Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, as a society, I mean, clearly we're not all in, we're not all suffer equally. The the yeah. intense extreme racism of the criminal justice system means that proportionally African Americans and Latinos suffer oh. at a far greater rate than do white people. But you know, the rate of incarceration has gone up for for whites as well, for all whites, but it's primarily for white people uh, over this time. So, I mean, we're, we're all affected by it to some extent, even if it's, some of us are, are separate much more than others. But I do think that we're at a moment where there's room in the mainstream and throughout society to really question and say, whoa, how many people should we put in prison? Is this really what we want to do? Um, and so... Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive... 
Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Dr. Christian Parenti, author of four books, including Lockdown in America, Police in Prisons in the Age of Crisis. We're talking about uh, how did we get here? What is this you know, near police state that we are in? And you make some very, very interesting points, I think, about the, the tie-in between uh, the, sort of the, the mathematics of economics and you know, moving toward, uh, you know, police repression and, and uh, putting large segments of our society in jail and behind bars. It's it's really fascinating. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, we're talking about a lot of political change really did happen in the late 60s and early 70s. And, of course, I remember Nixon uh, using fear, and certainly fear is a big factor, you know, ginning up fear of the other. Uh, and, you know, coming out of the 60s, there was, of course, the, uh, you know, fairly acceptable Martin Luther King faction. But then there was Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, and from the uh, Puerto Ricans, the Young Lords. They were daring to fight back against uh, police violence. So Nixon used this wonderful term, so reassuring, law and order. There's always fear and reassurance. He was very reassuring. What, what did the term law and order mean sort of politically and then in terms of you know reality on the ground yeah for well for nixon i mean engaging the war on drugs was about putting a lid on the rebellion the society-wide rebellion you got to remember so there's there's the riots that are happening these are unorganized spontaneous uprisings primarily by unemployed young african-americans who are living in rapidly deindustrializing cities right. who are frustrated by the lack of opportunities. But there's also the, the political movements. As you mentioned, Black Panthers, the Young Lords, you know, these are very militant, very sophisticated, well-organized movements that take inspiration from the decolonization struggles and national liberation struggles going on in what was then referred to as the Third World, now we call the Global South. But you also had, you know, the war in Vietnam breaking down. Yeah. Or, uh, so, you know, fragging became a huge problem in the military after the Tet Offensive. And by the military's own numbers, there were hundreds, uh, I mean, I think it's upward of like 600 documented fraggings in which enlisted men killed and wounded their officers and NCOs because they were being um, pushed around, because they didn't agree with the war. The breakdown of, of discipline in the U.S. military that was not some sort of, you know, cowardice or just shirking the no. It was born out of the fact that these soldiers had grown sophisticated enough by the end of the war. There was a whole critique developing throughout the society that, wait a minute, this is like an unjust war. Uh, we're on the wrong side. That The government of South Vietnam tortures people, is corrupt. What is this? You know, the, the, the masses of people support Ho Chi Minh and the, the Viet Cong. So, there was a level of political sophistication behind that breakdown. And you also had organized labor uh, in increasingly aggressive posture vis-a-vis bosses and their own union leadership, who frequently did not want them to go on strike. Had These leaders had worked hard to cut you know, deals with the bosses, and the, the rank and file wanted more. And when the union leaders said, no, uh, you, we got to stick with this, they would go on strike anyway. And we had, by the 19, early yeah. 1970s, there were massive strikes. Post office went on strike. Cops in numerous cities went on strike. The ports out west and in the Gulf were completely shut 
down at times. There were there were two major national trucking strikes. And this was like a moment of really incredible rebellion yeah. in the U.S. and um, and that is that is in many ways what Nixon was responding to in terms of law and order. And there was also a rising crime rate. Um, yeah. One thing that happened in the early seventies was they did the first victim surveys. And with that, mm-hmm. they found out, one, that crime was much higher than, than they had previously thought, because previously they had, um, there goes that street cleaner again, I don't know if you can hear that, sorry. That's um, But the, the uh, crime rates, they found that crime rates were much higher than previously thought. Before that, they had just used the uniform crime reports of the FBI, just, they would, you know, local police would report how many crimes were reported to them. So there was an, in, an increase in crime. So what Nixon did with his war on drugs was try and respond to all of that rebellion without appearing to do so. And Haldeman, his chief of staff, has a very uh, infamous quote now where he said, the president says that really the whole problem is the blacks, quote-unquote, and the thing to do is devise a system that addresses this without seeming to do so. Hmm. I mean, Holden, like, says that wow. in his diary. And what they're referring to is their war on heroin. They launched a war on drugs. And this was not the first war on drugs in America. No. America had been um, having drug wars occasionally, uh, going back to kind of anti-opium campaigns, right. which were really about controlling Chinese laborers out west. Very much so. And then Harry Anslinger in the yeah. 20s and 30s, the Bureau of Dangerous Narcotics, cracking down on marijuana. In fact, it was Anslinger who encouraged the use of the name marijuana rather than cannabis because it, it right. sounded more foreign and exotic and so played into this sort of whole campaign of mm-hmm. um, criminalizing primarily African-Americans and Mexican-Americans who were laborers in, in rural economies and the uh, poorest of the working class in urban economies and were the special focus of police attention. And so that class-race project of, you know, repressing labor was justified through this discourse of war on drugs. So it's not like this hadn't happened before, but Nixon engages this war on drugs, and um, and it is very clearly about more than drugs. It's about trying to impose order on a society that was in rebellion. Yes, indeed. And it's also true, uh, pardon me for, for this, with the uh, failed prohibition against alcohol, a lot of that was against Germans and Eastern Europeans who liked beer. <laughs> you know, it was specifically targeted at them. So back to, to Nixon, you know, he also had, in addition to law and order, the great silent majority. How did that factor into this whole, you know, war, police escalation kind of thing? That was like his, you know, in some ways you could say like the beginning of dog whistle politics, the kind of mock no. GOP. You know, the, um, that, I mean, that, 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 that modern GOP really begins with Barry Goldwater's run in 1964. Right. But what Nixon does in his rhetoric is try and stoke a fear within the, the white middle and working classes and, and sort of uh, appeal to 
their worst racist instincts and present himself as their tribune, he'll be the champion for the silent majority, which is understood, never said to be, but understood to be, you know, good white white people, law-abiding citizen, and that he would stand between them and social change, between them and riots in the city, between them and, you know, women, you know, uh, demanding full rights, between them and gays and lesbians demanding their full rights, between them and mass strikes shutting down the economy, all these things that the more conservative element in the Republican base found fearful. And so Nixon began uh, articulating a kind of code politics Mm. for them. Yeah, part of the Southern strategy, too, I am sure. And we're talking about, uh, you know, the the rise of, you know, kind of a police state. It's certainly more than I would have ever thought growing up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but it is here now. And and, uh, uh, Christian Parente, you write that, quote, these domestic social explosions in the late 60s, early 70s, hurt U.S. imperialism abroad. In the context of the Cold War, burning cities put the lie to official American mythologies. Say more about that, if you would, and how that plays into the, you know, uh, uh, gearing up of the police state. The Cold War is, is also part of the context. You've got to remember that in the, in the 1960s, you know, in the early 60s, there's decolonization underway in large parts of Africa. And the question is, you know, what, what will these new states do in the Cold War? Will they vote with the Soviet Union or will they vote with the U.S. in international forms? How will they structure their economies? Will these economies be open to European and American foreign investment by big multinational firms or will they be closed? Will they be heavily regulated capitalist economies dominated by national Will they be socialist economies where things are collectively owned and owned by the state? So all these questions were in play, and the U.S. was trying to influence the outcome of not just the moment of decolonization, but the policy development in much of the global South. And it did not help U.S. empire, uh, the effort of the U.S. state to push its agenda, which was an anti-communist, pro-capitalist, agenda that would facilitate the access to labor and raw materials in the global south by transnational firms from Europe and the U.S. That agenda was not aided when the U.S. itself was shown to be a place of great struggle and suffering. Mm. So when, when city after city, summer after summer, went up in flames, and this was on television, And U.S. diplomats would go out into the world and say, you know, American-style capitalism delivers the good. The obvious response was, well, if your society is so great, how come African-Americans are so unhappy and claim that there's such injustice? So it it, it hurt the, the, um, the, the, the sort of struggle for hearts and minds at a global scale. So part of what motivated the federal crackdown was that. It was about trying to clean up this, the, the appearances of chaos, like tighten up order at home so as to be able to project a, a more um, stable image abroad. And, um, no, it's that, seemed- yeah, and, that, and, and also, you know, part of it was 
there was a, a tremendous interplay back and forth. And a lot of the, the Third World Liberation movements of the 1960s influenced the, the radical sure. movements and communities of color here in the U.S., particularly mm-hmm. Black Panthers, Young Lords, the American Indian Movement. I mean, these drew their, their inspiration in part from guerrilla struggles in Latin America and Asia, and that's, you know, often, unfortunately, picked up the gun, which was, in retrospect, uh, an invitation yeah. for tremendous police and FBI repression. Yes. Yes, it was, certainly. And the Black Panthers, I mean, just so many different cases where, where the police abuses were just astounding. They're very little known now. But picking up a gun and challenging those who have a lot of training with guns and a lot of guns at their access... Yeah, it's not the best. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you no. Know, I mean, if you're going to go, I mean, I mean, going up against the largest military in the world, the U.S. government is um, probably not going to be a winning strategy. If you if you pick the methodology that the mm-hmm. empire is best at, I mean, that's right. probably not going to work out. Right, <laughs> it does seem to be the case. So there was Nixon, and then came. Uh, well, actually, before Reagan. There was Jimmy Carter, and your article reminds us that Jimmy Carter, who today is seen as a great liberal on foreign policy issues, which he seems to be, but then he appointed Paul Volcker as head Mm -hmm. of the Federal Reserve. What did Volcker do that exacerbated the class war and enhanced the need for police repression? So Volcker, and that's a really interesting thing, too, because it, it shows how the 70s are a fascinating decade, and there's, there's now a good literature on the 70s, um, some good books. Um, Gil Stein has a book, uh, uh, Cowie, uh, Staying Alive, his book on, on uh, the working class in the 70s. But yeah, I mean, in the beginning of the 1970s, you have Richard Nixon, who is definitely, you know, a right-wing person and a right-wing president at that time, presiding over the creation of the EPA, presiding over the creation right. of the, the Mine Safety Administration, yeah. uh, experimenting with a guaranteed income yes. in Indiana, I believe it was. And it was in response to this experiment of just giving a guaranteed income that a journalist at, said to Nixon, said, well, that's pretty Keynesian, isn't it? And he said, we're all Keynesians now. Hmm. So that's the beginning of the 1970s. You have a conservative Republican being, in many ways, one of the most progressive presidents we ever had. Really? By the end of the 70s, you've got a you know, genuinely pretty progressive individual, it seems, Jimmy Carter, actually beginning Reaganomics. It, it's Carter, in the last two years of his administration, who begins deregulating industry, begins with trucking and airlines and telecommunications, as I recall, and he appoints Paul Volcker to chairman of the Federal Reserve, and Volcker is the one who comes up with this idea of a cold bath recession. That the entire 1970s has been marked by this struggle between organized labor and also not unorganized labor, just the working class in general and the employer class, in which the employer class is trying to decrease wages, trying to push down the yes. cost of production to boost those profits. And they can't get anywhere. And so Volcker realizes, well, you know, this, this can't be done firm by firm, you know, there has to be a society-wide, an economy-wide uh, restructuring. The balance of power between employers and workers has to change. And so his 
uh, jacking of interest rates up is what pushes the economy into recession. And that recession is uh, the, the, the sort of basis for the real rollback of the Reagan era. So even though Volcker is appointed by Carter mm. and begins raising interest rates under Carter, it is really under Reagan that this stuff moves forward more rapidly. And you get that it was the, as I said earlier, it was the worst recession since the Great Depression. Now, we, we beat that with yeah. the last recession. Right. But, you know, so it was an introduced trauma. And at one point, I mean, this leads to one of the largest banks in America going broke. Mexico threatens to default on its debt. Volcker is called to Congress and made to explain why he won't lower interest rates to stimulate the economy. And he says very clearly, he says, we haven't seen uh, wages go down enough. That, uh-huh. that goods with a high labor content, their prices are, are, are not going down. And, and, and then he also says during that, uh, those hearings, he says, I think you have to accept that the standard of living for the average American has to go down. And what a it's surprise. Restoring profitability for, for the rich. And that's what Reagan's fundamental message was. And that is when this sort of process of neoliberal restructuring began. We didn't call it neoliberal, right. neoliberalism in those days, but now it's sort of like both the left and the right refer to this radical free market economics as, as either kind of classical liberalism or, or neoliberalism because it refers back to the kind of the theories of Adam Smith and Ricardo, anti-statist theories. And, I mean, that's when it begins. And, and the Democrats, Clinton, that is, uh, pursue the exact same strategy yes. with his end, ending welfare, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And, and thus it is that we've, we've, achieved, we've now achieved levels of economic inequality that rival Brazil. Rival Brazil, they rival the uh, so-called Gilded Age in the 1890s. It's uh, you know making war on the poor. Guess what? People don't like that. People who have been you know work. Not just also the poor. I think it's important to say, you know, yes. it's making war on, on the working class. It's making Excellent. war on, on, on you know just people who who have nothing but their labor to sell. Right. You know the yeah. vast majority of us. Uh, it's so true. Now, uh, Willie Horton. You know, nowadays, that, that, it seems to me that's when the term liberal was redefined, that Mike Dukakis, as governor of Massachusetts, uh, let Willie Horton out and he committed some more crimes. Of course, Willie Horton was a black man, and, I, 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 it, and it raised a lot of fear and, and made the, you know, liberal meant soft on crime. This whole being tough on crime. I mean, back in the 70s, uh, uh, Speaker Tip O'Neill bought into that. Everybody, it seemed, Democrats and Republicans were buying into that. And it really, it seems to me, just ratcheted up the police state uh, quite a bit. Tell Mm -hmm. us a bit about Mm -hmm. about that and where Willie Horton fits into this whole history. Yeah, I mean, that was George Bush Sr. got Hillary Knowlton, a famous a public relations firm that was then later associated with this, the um, the fake incubator story when the Iraqis invaded Kuwait. Right. The Iraq invaded Kuwait. There was this claim that they had been stealing hundreds of incubators and turned out Kuwait didn't even have hundreds of incubators. They didn't. Anyway, a very left right wing PR firm right. um, was contracted to do this ad, which was about uh, Willie Horton, who was an African American. 
prisoner who escaped from a work detail and murdered and raped somebody. And this was unique in part because up to that time, you know, law and order and crime hadn't been so central in national elections. Uh, and so, but it's a perfect example of how the war on drugs and the criminal justice buildup produces the very racism that it then feeds on, right? So it produces this spectacle of fear that if, 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 if the few African Americans represented on television, uh, you know, if a large portion of the few African Americans on television are criminals, it would take a very strong and very self-conscious viewer not to be affected somehow, even unconsciously, by that racism. So Bush cast Dukakis as soft on crime. That terrified Democrats at every level. Yes. So they then leaned into the criminal justice buildup, leaned into the war on drugs, weren't going to be called. They don't quote-unquote wimp-proof the left flank, you know, so they, uh, mm-hmm. the right flank. And, um, uh, yeah, and in, in the process, it was like th- that ad, which just showed Willie Horton's mugshot, you know, both responded to or, or, or um, spoke to pre-existing racism, but at the same time created racism. And that's one of the things that the criminal justice buildup does. It responds to, appeals to pre-existing racism in the population, particularly kind of anti-black racism. That's the tradition in America, right? That every oh, yeah. immigrant group is sort of with a wink and a nod. This is back to the Irish, right? Yep. Not being fully white at first and then right. eventually struggling their way into whiteness. And that's the, the same, version of that same process is extended to Asians and, and Latinos, even as they suffer from racism. There's also this kind of like, well, you know, um, but you can get on board the anti-black bandwagon <laughs> of racism and, and sort of struggle your way up the racial hierarchy. Um, so, but the criminal justice crackdown is a kind of, you know, spectacle, a freak show, a circus that mm. produces racism. It produces images of, of racism constantly. It casts particularly African Americans as dangerous, ignorant, violent, and in need of violent state control. That's like the constant, implicit message. And it's hard for anyone to escape the influence of that. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, when, when the media environment one is in is saturated with that. So the, the, the Willie Horton thing is just an event in and of itself because it helped lose a national election. I mean, I mean, up until that time, I mean, national elections weren't lost on, on domestic law and order issues. I mean, like, you know, that was for a lower level of politics. And it was also significant because it just embodies perfectly the kind of exchange that happens between policymakers and the media. What the mm. old British uh, criminologist named Stan Cohen, who I studied with at the LSC, called moral panics. The moral panic is when there's a sort of like feedback loop between the media and and politicians, and they're kind of increasingly mm. uh, amping each other up, and and that's what Willie Horton and embodied in a way. Wow. Or the Willie Horton ad. 
Well, that's yet another part of what FDR meant, I think, when he said we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Fear is manipulated. It has been manipulated very much, and it's such a part of American elections now. You know, it's the other, the bad guys, not us. You know, we are the great silent majority. It goes on and on and on. Briefly, Bill Clinton's remembered fondly by many Democrats. And, and what, some, what things did he do to make uh, police state problems worse? Oh man, he, I mean, he, uh, it champions some of the worst repression. So the 1994 crime bill under Clinton pushed enormous amounts of resources down to the police. That really helped, uh, the militarization of even small town policing. That's, it was in the 90s that SWAT teams proliferate to, you know, I mean, pretty much every single municipality, um, now has a SWAT team or something like it. Uh, uh, there was increased uh, powers for the prosecution. He, then there was his 1996 Immigration Reform Act, IREA, uh, Illegal Immigration Reform Act, that helped militarize the border and uh, made it much more difficult for undocumented immigrants to, um, you know, exercise any kind of rights. There was the Prison Litigation Reform Act of 96, which was just horrible in that it stripped jailhouse lawyers, which is to say self-educated prisoners who sue the prison over various types of infractions, just stripped away huge amounts of uh, latitude and rights from prisoners, made it next to impossible for prisoners to sue. And that really uh, damaged, that, that, that helps uh, make conditions in prison worse because yes. prison conditions historically have been improved when prisoners struggle, um, you know, through protests, but also through lawsuits. You know, it, and when it, prisoners can make a, a strong case to a judge, and the judge says, "Yeah, you you must do X, whatever. Give people right. time outdoors. Give people uh, libraries, etc. Medical." So, yeah. I mean, he basically Clinton basically took away most of the power of prisoners to sue, also to appeal, really restricted appeals, federal appeals. Um, yeah, I mean, just really, really horrible. And that's important to remember when considering Hillary Clinton. I mean, yes, and lobbied for a lot of that stuff. Oh, no doubt. I, <laughs> well, Bernie Sanders, you know, is surging still, and he recently said, quote, we need to move away from the militarization of the police forces. Good for him for saying that. You know, and we need jails to keep society safe from violent, dangerous people. We need police to stop bad guys and to protect good citizens. What would you suggest, Christian Parenti, what, Parenti, I should say, uh, what are realistic steps that can be taken now and in the near future to roll back the excesses of the police? I think the most important thing is to end the war on drugs. And that was uh, very heartened by the the sort of slow but steady legalization of marijuana. And, um, I mean, the the war on drugs is the number one justification for all of this stuff. And so if we could um, legalize or decriminalize drugs and start seeing drugs as a a public health problem, that would be, I think, the most important thing. And I think that that's what candidates should be held to. That, I mean, specific, you know, piecemeal reforms around the police, that's all good. But it's all like, let's get, 
let's get to the basis of it, which is that the war on drugs, that's how all of this stuff has been justified. So if we accept that drugs are a public health problem, uh, I mean, that's, you know, that's what I think should happen. And ultimately, you know, I mean, I think what we need is we need a, a restructuring of our economy, of our employment base, uh, you know, along the lines of the New Deal. We need government work yes, programs. If, yes. the, if the private sector can't put people to work, then the government should. There's a lot that needs to be done. There are plenty of schools that need to be rebuilt. There's all sorts of stuff, especially throwing climate change into the mix. There's all sorts of retrofitting to the, the built environment that's necessary. We could easily use a, a, a new civilian conservation corps type yes. of a work program. So, I mean, those are the kinds of demands, I think, that are realistic and doable and would appeal to the mass of Americans where they're really at. And, you know, I, I mean, ending the war on drugs, you've got to decriminalize drugs. Absolutely. That's what I think should be done. Thank you so much. Our guest has been Dr. Christian Parente, author of four books, including Locked on in America, Police and Prisons in the Age of Crisis. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's see what we can do about police brutality. Can you answer why there's kids laying up in the hospital? Bodies in the mold to me, it's not lots to defend something you care about serve to be there when there's people without you don't protect or serve you extort and harass you took the job for the power the gun and the badge except when you're wrong and take the punishment you swore on an oath you're supposed to live under it i'm fighting my case so i'll speak for the people high police department it's crew nice to meet you we need to stand up because they're out of control with police like this we have to revolt we cannot sit down we cannot let go we cannot pretend we we haven't seen what they've shown We need to stand up Cause they're out of control With police like this We have to revolt We cannot sit down We cannot let go We cannot pretend We haven't seen what they've shown Excessive force turned deadly Now you just shoot When they're cuffed on the ground It's batons and boots I had my own little taste Of a yellow mace cane I got dragged and slammed Inside a metal door jam Forget about me What about T. Williams The short old man When they shot and killed him He didn't do a single thing He was Walking away, gunned down by a cop in the middle of the day. Witnesses say there wasn't one good reason. Four kill shots left him on the ground bleeding. Tell me right now how it's justified. You could have shot him in the legs and he would have survived. Or better yet, use your taser. That's what it's there for. Instead, you put a harmless man inside of a morgue. Now his family has to grieve and you're fighting the case. There's cops like this everywhere, so how are we safe? We need to stand up, cause they're out of control With police like this, we have to revolt We cannot sit down, we cannot let go We cannot pretend we haven't seen what they've shown We need to stand up, cause they're out of control With police like this, we have to revolt We cannot sit down, we cannot let go We cannot pretend we haven't seen what they've shown Every tax dollar earned puts your kids through college But you walk the streets, treating people like garbage We hear it all the time, yet yeah, nothing is done Tell me why the the city only takes the badge and the gun He was partially deaf and you shot him in the back Your lawyer can say what he wants, we know the facts Four seconds went by before you pulled and clapped No warning was given and the witness proves that From Seattle to Frisco, LA to NY Enough is enough, people don't need to die Do you want another riot, Rodney King type style? I'd lock him for life, I was part of that trial I refuse to let this one just slide by So I decide to let everyone know why We need to stand 
stand up and it needs to be now Cause if we don't someone we know might get shot down We need to stand up cause they're out of control With police like this we have to report We cannot sit down, we cannot let go